Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a custom-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I'm posting this podcast on Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. I'm sharing the day and the date because the days seem to be blurring over these past few weeks as we practice social distancing. On Friday, March 27th, 2020, I launched a limited podcast series addressing how the COVID-19 pandemic is reframing healthcare in the U.S. You can find a 15-minute introductory episode I recorded and posted as episode number 82 on the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. In this limited series, I'm reaching out to interview future-facing, courageous healthcare leaders and entrepreneurs and practitioners asking two questions. How is the COVID-19 pandemic immediately changing the way you're delivering healthcare? And how will COVID-19 reframe American healthcare for years to come? The situation is changing daily. So in order to share the remarkable insights from these interviews as quickly as possible, I'm going to be releasing a new episode every day or two this week and perhaps next week as well. Now, for this episode, our guest is Dr. Anthony Slonim. He's the president and chief executive officer of Renown Health in Reno, Nevada. Over the last four years, he and his colleagues have created one of the most innovative and progressive health services organizations in the country. I've interviewed Dr. Slanum before, and I would urge you to look that interview up. It was just a phenomenal learning experience and incredibly inspiring. Dr. Slanum is a nationally recognized thought leader. Modern Healthcare has named him as one of the 50 most influential clinical executives of 2019. He's also been named a physician leader to know every year since 2014 on the Becker's Hospital Review. He's a board-certified pediatric intensive care doctor by training. He's authored more than 15 textbooks and published more than 60 academic journal articles. Let me just say that he also has a doctorate in public health, which is absolutely unique amongst hospital CEOs. Before joining Renown Health, Dr. Slanum served as an executive at the Barnabas Health System in New Jersey, at the Carillion Clinic in Virginia, and at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C., He chairs the American Hospital Association Systems Council, representing more than 300 integrated health systems nationwide. I am so excited to share this dialogue we just had three or so days ago. So without further ado, Dr. Tony Slonim. Tony, welcome to Creating a New Healthcare. And again, I'm so excited to speak to you. The last time we spoke, I was just blown away by you and by renowned healthcare and what you and your colleagues are doing. And so Super, super excited. I'm going to have to contain myself here. I know these are tough times, but you know, I look forward to having conversations with people like you. Before we get into the, some of the questions, I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself and just inform people about Renown Health. Sure, Zeb, and thank you again for the opportunity to spend some time with you. I so much look forward to our conversations. Uh, I'm Tony Sloan, the president and CEO of Renown Health, and I'm a physician by background, a clinical care physician both an internist and a pediatrician with specialty training in intensive care medicine and a doctor in health policy uh, and public health. And I currently have an amazing role as the president and CEO of Renown Health, a five hospital acute care health system sited in Northern Nevada, in Reno, Nevada, and get the great privilege of 
helping to lead 7,000 wonderful employees through uncertain times at the moment. Mm-hmm. How is the COVID-19 situation in Reno, Nevada? What is the penetration right now and where are you with that? You know, we're, we're actually hesitant to talk too loudly about it. I think that while the numbers are increasing, we're still less than 100 here in Northern Nevada. And we're cautious that uh, we know that there's a surge coming. We're a little bit behind temporarily the East Coast and even behind a little bit uh, our wonderful colleagues in Southern Nevada. The, the worst is still yet to come, unfortunately, but for the moment we're holding our own and doing very thoughtful planning about the best ways to care for the community. And so how has COVID-19 already changed the way that you all are delivering healthcare in the clinics, in the hospital, and the rest of your organization? The frontline providers, the doctors, the nurses, the teams of people are just under crazy uncertainty, bringing all they've got to bear to help their friends, neighbors, and and the community more broadly. And also very proud of our leadership team that has done an amazing job at being out in front on this curve and helping our organization to prepare for what might come, which also means helping the community prepare for what might come. Many weeks ago, Zev, uh, even before the recommendations and you know, the directives were put in place by the government and governmental officials, we had stopped our students from working, sent our volunteers home, made sure that we canceled all elective surgeries in compliance with the American College of Surgeons recommendations, uh, and really made sure that we limited visitors at the time. And while some people thought that we were uh, being a bit too aggressive, you, you don't want to end up behind in a scenario like this. And you know, this is where I think the great value of public health tools and interventions become relevant because prevention, screening, planning are all in the public health toolbox. And you want to make sure that you're setting your organization up and your community up for success, not failure. And if you get behind, it's a very hard road to to climb your way out of that hole. So I'm very, very appreciative of my leadership team uh, and all of the people who are doing a great amount of work to make sure we're protected. You know, as you're speaking, I remember saying something to you when we recorded our last podcast many, many months ago, and I said, it would be so great if more healthcare CEOs had a background in public health. And of course, you have a doctorate in public health, which is quite unusual. But it just seems to me like, wow, you couldn't ask for anything better than to have someone like you at the helm who understands public health and how it works and how it should work leading us through this. How about clinics? Are you converting visits in person to virtual or are people still coming in and seeing their doctors? Most of the care is now being provided remotely. We do have a couple of urgent cares open. Obviously, the emergency departments are open uh, to make sure that we are ready to handle the most severe. But I'm so proud of our community, many of whom are following the directives to stay home. You know, people are anxious. They're scared. They've been listening, though, and we're really appreciative of the fact that many people, except under unusual circumstances, are staying put, staying home, and helping us to fight this fight around protecting others. That's fantastic. 
So it sounds like even though it hasn't penetrated, and I'm hoping that it doesn't in your area, you're still taking all, to your point, taking all the precautions to try to mitigate that surge, if you will. Correct. Yeah. So again, you have this unusual background and, you know, I'm just kind of curious. I have so many questions in my mind to ask you from your public health perspective, what are your thoughts about what's happening around the country? And, you know, do you have any sorts of thoughts about recommendations or or ideas that, you know, you would want to share with folks around how we should be thinking about this or how we should be planning? What are questions perhaps that we're not asking that we should be thinking more about? Sure. Well, you know, Zeb, it's interesting. Many, many clinical people are trained in a medical model. We were trained as physicians and you know, I have a background as a nurse as well. In nursing as well, you're trained to do everything you can do for the individual patient and the individual family that you're responsible for their care. And you're going to pull out all the stops and make sure that you're advocating for the best and most effective care for them. And the unfortunate reality is that while we live in an abundant world, where we have all of the medications and tools in the U.S. healthcare system to effectively treat people and their families. In the setting of a pandemic, especially the current one, public health principles prevail. And many clinicians on the front line are still trying to adapt what they know and how they've been operating in conditions of abundance in this new frame of a condition of scarcity. And the public health model, while under normal circumstances is responsible for air quality and water quality and vaccinations, and making sure public health infrastructure is in place if you need it in the setting of emergency. Well, now the public health infrastructure has jurisdiction over this work. And the tools of of the public health infrastructure, including screening and prevention and allocation of scarce resources take precedence over the medical model. That's just how it works. The problem is we, while we test for it and we prepare for it and we drill for it, many of us in our lives have never seen something where the public health infrastructure has had to perform in a command control model. And you know, we all have incident command and we all have other mechanisms where we're supposed to drill and learn on these things all year long. But it's a little bit different when the reality is here. And so there's a tension between that abundance and scarcity and for people that are trained in the medical model to have to adapt in a public health model. And the reality is that there are simply not enough pieces of equipment or supplies to go around. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you have this public health infrastructure is so that the individual provider, you you don't put the burden of making allocation decisions at the bedside because it leads to too much variability and it's a very heavy weight for the frontline provider to bear. And, and that's why the public health infrastructure matters so much, particularly in crisis, because you expect the allocation to be driven through protocols and guidelines. 
in a way that absolves the frontline providers to be able to take responsibility. And I, I think that's a really important distinction given where we are today in a situation we see examples around the world where there's just not enough stuff. Whether the stuff is masks or PPE or ventilators doesn't much matter. What matters is we're not familiar, we, the US healthcare system, is not familiar with working under the conditions of constraint and scarcity. Right. I think this point is absolutely brilliant. I've not heard anyone articulate it, that there is this shift in the model. We are trained, we all think, whether we're providers or, or patients, we all think in this medical model, and which you're suggesting, which I think is absolutely true, is that we have to shift into a public health mode, a public health model, with all the ramifications of that. As you were speaking, I literally took out a notepad and I wrote down models of care. The top of the page I wrote before, and on the other side of the page I wrote after, I drew a line down the middle of the page, and all of a sudden, all these ideas of the way we were thinking before and acting before and the way we're going to be thinking and acting after, I'm going to ask you that question in a moment. But before I do, let me ask you this question, which is, given your expert knowledge, not only as, a, as an executive and as a clinician, but as a public health expert, how well prepared do you think this country was from a public health perspective? We have some sort of infrastructure, but there's been a lot of changes in the last few years. And do you think that one of the things that we'll need to be doing in the future is having a more robust or different public health infrastructure as we move forward? You know, I think that the the public health infrastructure for the things that we have counted on, air, water, those kinds of things, air and water safety and, and the like, probably pretty well does its job. It's difficult to plan and model for the once a century occurrence. And some folks who are trying to evaluate the effectiveness of the public health model and the cuts that have been made uh, over time to that model, this is a delicate balance. This is like buying insurance, right? You never know, you wanna balance the amount of investment in the insurance product with the risk and the lead time that you know the accident may occur and so you can shortcut some things but you may pay a bigger deductible at some point if you get into that catastrophic wreck and i think that's what we're seeing right now is that we passed the deductible <laughs> and, and now we're paying the price um, and we'll continue to pay the price as we have to stand up appropriate resources to deal with the extent of uh, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. That's a great analogy. People might think about this as sort of a black swan event. Maybe it fits into that realm. But, you know, people have also said we should have expected this. And moving forward, do you think that we should be prepared for this to happen again or something like it or something worse? There's a variety of predictors out there that uh, this won't be the last we see of COVID itself. And some have hypothesized going back even decades that the, you know, the pandemic, a pandemic would come, not specifically COVID or coronavirus. And I think that is to some extent, right, given the way the world operates, the, the longer you go without, the more likely 
the next few years will be that they will have something that generates uh, important action. But this is a place where you've in particular been an advocate, Zeb, which I think is important to bring out. The world and our medical model, the everyday way we approach people around their health and their healthcare has worked from the lens of abundance, except for those who don't have it. And that's where the social determinants come in. That's the place where there are lots of people every day who face their chronic conditions, their ills from a position of scarcity where they may not have the ability to pay a copay. They may only have the emergency department at their disposal. And so we can imagine how much more vulnerable they are today when the rest of the world is experiencing scarcity and they're even more compromised because they're usually in scarcity and now they're in depravity and they just can't get access for everyday functional things that they need to sustain their health. And I think if we could learn something, this has turned the tide for those of us who have been living this world of abundance and given us a sampling, an appetizer of what scarcity actually looks like and how we need to be more thoughtful coming out the back end of the, of the pandemic to think how we're gonna do and perform our responsibilities to provide for those who usually live their life in terms of scarcity. I think that their pent up demands after this will be even greater. Um, many more people will be unemployed, many more economic downturns, many more places in which people can't get everyday food, healthy foods, vaccinations, medications, things that will keep them healthy. And we are going to have to face that head on. I'm excited at Renown Health. We, we've been organizing our work around health and healthcare for many years now. And I think that that preparation will serve us well as we go into this new frame. I was actually thinking that as you were speaking that you have done what very few other organizations have done, which is very, very few, which is to reframe, redesign, reorganize yourself into medical care and then into health and healthcare. Could you say a word to remind the audience for those who, who didn't hear you, the first interview I did with you, how you had reorganized? And I'm very, very interested in hearing how you believe that will situate renowned health for the future. We as a healthcare organization, a health system, a moderately sized health system, have a responsibility as a not-for-profit to care for the community when they're sick and injured. We expect that to happen. We have a at our roots, we were a county hospital and we're very honored to have performed in that space. And in the last strategic plan, we differentiated between an operating division that's responsible for healthcare, caring for people when they're sick and injured, and an operating division that we call our health services division that's responsible for keeping people healthy. And we define health as a state of well-being mentally, physically, and spiritually, knowing that large segments of our community have not yet adapted uh, to understanding what it means to live healthy. And it's our job to help inspire them to better health. And so those two operating divisions is how we're organizing our work. 
And even in the space of COVID, while we've got teams that are preparing for a surge, we have other members of the team that are continuing to execute the work of assuring that our great health system is here for people if their chest pain occurs, or if they have need a question that's answered, that's to be answered, or what to do about herbals and alternatives when COVID is striking, how do they keep themselves and their immune system up and ready? And so we're pleased to be able to, even in the setting of the pandemic, serve the community for questions that are not crisis management, but prepare people to be resilient when we might get struck with the virus here in the community. You know, one of the things I've been thinking quite a bit about is this issue that with COVID, with the ensuing you know, changes in income across the country, with the social isolation, which may last for weeks, if not longer to come, you're seeing it just multiply in terms of intensity. And I wonder, and I've been thinking about this, and I'm curious as to your expert opinion, you know, is there a second wave of this COVID pandemic that isn't, in fact, infectious, but rather a second wave of the tsunami being around the social determinants of health, where we're going to see folks with chronic diseases, complex chronic diseases, who aren't taking their medications, who aren't able to follow the appropriate diet, that aren't getting the physical activity, that are under tremendous stress, that have comorbidities of depression, all worsening their chronic diseases and chronic conditions, and then those who are socioeconomically vulnerable and seeing you know, the worsening of that. And so could the second wave of the pandemic, in fact, be around that? And you know, could we see a flood of people entering the system because of that? And so I've been thinking about that. I actually wrote an article about it recently on LinkedIn, and I'm just kind of curious as to what your thoughts are. Yeah, I think you are spot on, Deb. I think that, I mean, just use the definition I use for health, which is a frame of being in well-being mentally, physically, and spiritually. We know the chronic conditions of mental illness plague all of our families in one way or another and are underserved nationally. And when you layer on top of that, even for people that are not experiencing chronic mental illness, the stressors and the anxiety and the fear that comes with a pandemic where people are not really sure how to manage the uncertainty that exists in the world, and they are now forced to be isolated and deal with those fears themselves. Uh, there's that second wave that will affect mental illness, even for people who didn't have a chronic mental illness before, but now situationally are put to the test and will experience anxiety and depression and other mood disorders by virtue of being put to a test that they may not have the capabilities to deal with. And so you've got the underlying chronic folks who would tend to deteriorate and an overlay of situational mental compromise that will accompany that. And that will just open up the dike and, and, and more people will be uh, presenting with mental health conditions is my guess. And you can apply that example to any number of things. We have a situation where family members are hospitalized in, in an epigenetic area right now where the, wor the world is challenging them. They can't go out. They've got underlying chronic disease. And the question is about how are they coping at home? These are elderly family members. 
is is real for us and how do you help not only as a family member because the healthcare infrastructure is completely overwhelmed having time to hold someone's hand not going to happen people are running from one person to another to intubate them and put them on ventilators and i think we have to pause a minute to figure out what are the other ways that we can care for people that go beyond medical intervention and it's especially important as we're likely to see and have seen the escalation of the number of deaths right where people are dying alone in the pandemic and wow what what ways can we serve them differently and make sure that they're cared for even at the time of death yeah well thank you for speaking to the behavioral health issue because i haven't really seen or read people talking about that that i think you're right the situational stress those who haven't had challenges with depression or anxiety or otherwise with this stress may in fact fall into that and experience that and those that already have those conditions and challenges it'll worsen and you know and then you overlay that with the comorbidities on other chronic diseases and you know again in the moment as we're concerned with the surge and and rightly so i think there is this pent up the second wave of the tsunami uh, we're we're so focused on the first wave coming and hitting and there's one behind it and it's a different type and i think it could last for months if not years and I'm glad you pointed out the behavioral health issue. If you were going to recommend some changes that we should start institute, I think more health systems should do what you've done, which is organize into different operational units. Again, one set of being in the acute medical model, surgeries, specialty clinics, ICUs, all that sort of stuff. And then another operational unit should be really around chronic disease management and social determinants of health and prevention. So curious if there were things you would say that we should start to do, especially now in the aftermath of this, what, what would those be? I think that the uh, opportunity to think about health and healthcare is important. Obviously we've organized our organization around it and there are lots of ways that we could continue to improve the way we approach population health. I also think this is giving us an opportunity, you know, I would have, never have necessarily come up with this abundant scarcity um, analogy if it wasn't for um, the way that we're having to think about our day-to-day work. And I think there's a a little bit of an aha moment. I, I know I'm being more sensitive to it. I hope not too sensitive about the way that we communicate and how that communication signals for other people thoughtful preparations versus a more deliberate urgency to act versus a pants on fire approach and we're in crisis. I think we have to be really careful about how we message things because they get or don't get attention based on how we we draw the messages out. And an example of this is I think that while people have been talking about the social determinants and and many of us have acted on it, you've been a great spokesperson. I think I've advocated for how we address social determinants. We now have a better understanding of what that means for people than ever before. In addition, we're on our team always trying to be thoughtful that when we pull a certain lever, 
people will respond because Ren Allen said it. And you have to be really careful with the messaging from the pulpit that you're in because you want to make sure that the reactions are appropriately organized. People will interpret differently what you say, and you have to make sure you've thought about the different interpretations before you say it. So I, I think language does matter here and want to make sure that as we're approaching problems in health and healthcare, we're signaling them with the right degree of intensity to get the kind of action that we need applied to them. My God, that was so wise. I'm a little speechless here. I think every healthcare leader should hear what you just said. One of the dangers is as we come out of the immediate emergency and urgency of this moment, and hopefully we will, and hopefully soon, that there will be a tendency, I think, as you point out, to in the medical model, in that interventional mindset, to act and to do things. And we're seeing examples of that even now with looking for treatments for COVID-19 that may actually cause more harm than good without the appropriate testing and trialing of it. That could happen in spades as people start to just clamor and do things and institute things. It seems to me you're giving us some wise advice to think and be thoughtful and not jump into making changes too wildly as we move into the future, into hopefully will be a, a post-COVID era. And I just think the idea of really in a methodical, intentional, systematic way to reorient and really redefine the problems and go through that process. I find myself even falling into the trap of, you know, what do we do and how do we do it fast and big and scale? And it is the most wise thing I've heard uh, in terms of thinking about the future and moving forward. You know, Zeb, I, I'm very proud of the fact that I spent many years practicing clinical medicine as a pediatric ICU doctor. Among the 4,000 pediatric ICU doctors in the country, we're, we're pretty much control freaks, uh, right? We titrate medications based on mil millimeter changes in blood pressure, and we look for changes in uh, oxygen tension in the blood and adapt our interventions around that. And wise mentors years ago said to me, you don't necessarily have to do something. <laughs> you can watch and sometimes just allow the body to heal itself. So I turned out in my clinical training to be a minimalist. Little nudges of physiology in one way or another without big swings matter. And that's highly relevant to leadership. A little nudge on this side, a little nudge on that side to allow the system to self-correct can oftentimes be valuable because if you push too hard in one area of the balloon, the other area pops and you want to make sure that you're addressing the whole picture. Thank you so much. I, I didn't know we would go into this realm of leadership, but that's where we are. And I'm not surprised given that I'm talking to you. What sort of final thoughts or words do you have about the future? Is there something you want to leave the audience with today? You know, I think that one of the things that COVID and the pandemic has helped me better understand beyond the abundance and the scarcity issues is the real importance of leadership in this space and how we can help others evolve their thinking. 
you know, I've heard a number of times throughout the crisis, we just need to leave this up to people's common sense. And common sense goes out the window. Remember, you've got a very vegetative part of our old brain that functions in this self-preservation model when we're scared and afraid and anxious. And you see this every day in news clips of people who are hoarding Lysol wipes or buying up paper towels or eggs because it's the thing grandma taught you when you know she was a, a victim of the Great Depression or, or the war. And those were things that we could never understand because they had lived through them. And I think uh, we're living through our own example of the Great Depression and the war. And we have to be careful to protect against those vegetative responses and realize that we have a broader contribution to make and acknowledge, which is to give thanks to the people that are bearing the brunt, to make sure that people understand that we're all in this together and to fight against the self-preservation aspects of our lower brain and get to higher brain cognitive functioning, which says we have to share, we have to be deliberate, and we have to appropriately apportion in these elements, in these times of scarcity, the life-saving interventions that we have available to us. And common sense won't be enough because we haven't practiced or been trained to do that. And it's up to leaders to make sure that we're helping people to understand how to go about that work. I am speechless, Tony. Dr. Tony Slonham, CEO of Renown Health and a public health agent. Can't thank you enough for your wisdom. Can't thank you enough for your leadership. I would love the opportunity to circle back with you in a few weeks and really share more of your wisdom. And Tony, I just want to thank you seriously and sincerely. Zev, always an honor to be with you. And thank you so much for bringing this great work to so many people. We're appreciative and we look forward to the next time we can be together. Thank you again. Thanks, Tony. Take care and be well. Folks, that was an interview recorded just uh, three or four days ago with Dr. Tony Slonham, the CEO of Renown Health in Reno, Nevada. As you just heard, I was left literally speechless by Dr. Slanem's authentic leadership and his wisdom, especially at this moment in time. He's clearly an exceptional executive. And in addition to being a seasoned executive, he's also a seasoned physician and an expert in public health. In a previous interview we conducted, I, I mentioned that we needed more CEOs with these sorts of public health credentials. That was true then, a few months ago, but even more so now in this COVID-19 era. As you just heard, our interview ended up going into a discourse on the type of intentional leadership that will be required in this time of crisis and in its aftermath. Dr. Slanum has a perspective that I hope other leaders can be inspired by and benefit from. As always, I, I hope you have benefited from this podcast episode. My goal is to provide you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration and to serve as a catalyst for reframing and transforming our healthcare system. And as I do each and every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients. In these times, especially I and we truly appreciate you for what you do 
and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, to families, to communities, and to our entire society. My friends and colleagues, please, please, please take care of yourself. And I would ask that you share this podcast with your colleagues. This is Zev Neuwirth. You've been listening to a limited series on how COVID-19 is reframing healthcare in America, part of the Creating a New Healthcare podcast. Until next time, be safe and be well.